My people, my people, my people, we are finally here. It is the week of the Indy 500, and this is your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode, and this is going to be the part one. For sure, no question, no doubt. For those of you long-term listeners, those of you who might be tuning in for the first time, we normally try and do a single episode each week, hour and a half or so, sometimes it stretches to two. Oh, we are going to be doing probably two hours for this one, but I really do want to lock it in at about two. And then we're doing a second episode without a doubt. There's no way in the world we're going to get to all your questions. I think this is possibly a new record. More than 6,000 words and more than 120 questions. So uh, we're going to get to them here in just a second. As always, I want to say a big thank you to you. Seriously, huge thanks. This is so much fun to do each week. We tend to start off with a big topic or two and visit with that for a little while before trying to pick up the pace and rock through a higher number, higher volume, higher rate of speed to get through the rest. So thanks again for sending everything in. Big thanks as well to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers who take such great care of us. TorontoMotorsports.com, those wacky, wacky people from Canada. They, I guess we let them in on the border. We, uh, we let them in to get to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway where they're going to be outside of 16th and Georgetown. If you are there, please go see them. Please go be a good patron of our man Derek Koska and also the amazing artist who draws just about everything for us, that being Roger Warwick. If you're familiar, if you kind of sort of know the layout of the Speedway, you'll know that there's a new roundabout there as you get close to 16th and Georgetown. Maybe you're heading to the main office to pick up some tickets or whatever else uh, by turn one. Well, they're right there, kind of sort of at the roundabout next to the USAC office. So merchandise trailer, mobile trailer, torontomotorsports.com. Please go say hi. We have a brand new shirt, one that Roger and I cooked up celebrating my pal, hopefully your pal as well, the amazing William Theodore Ribs, Willie T. Ribs, 30th anniversary of breaking that barrier, becoming the first African-American driver to qualify for the Indy 500 30 years, so came up with a commemorative T-shirt. I can't wait to get mine. Uh, the chartreuse colors, but kind of a, that's a shock to the eyes, but hey, it's Willie T. It's the authentic color of the car back in 91, so go check them out. Other thing I wanted to mention real quickly as well, I won't be there, sadly, but I hope you go, and that is starting Friday, May 28th, the Indie Memorabilia Show. It is not at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway as it's normally been for the last decade or so behind the Pagoda. No, indeed, they have set up a new memorabilia show, the Embassy Suites Event Center 2353 Perry Road in Plainfield, Indiana. Going to be running Friday from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. I believe it's also open Saturday as well. Uh just go. Uh, we need them. I need them. I need them to be around so when I can get back to Indy next year, 
the memorabilia show is it's for me really just being selfish and honest but our pals at torontomotorsports.com got the mobile merchandise trailer just outside turn one at indy please go see them and then friday and saturday plainfield indiana i don't know if you can hear the police in the background they're coming to get me for buying too much memorabilia sorry y'all try and stop me uh plainfield indiana embassy suites event center any memorabilia show (sighs) that's your public service announcement you know what else i have to say i can't wait to get rolling on the show here because having spent about the last week working uh, i think short days were like 16 hours some of them were 18 uh i actually had to take a nap before i started recording today because i'm still pretty groggy but as you can tell i have had some coffee no beer and we're going to get going here. A little bit of music bed to kick off that uh, that occurrence. So guess what? I have heard rumor from the internet that on Saturday, the end of qualifying was kind of confusing. Jeez. <laughs> ah, so our man Jim Kaiser did his best to take 973,000 questions about it and condense them down into a smaller representation sample size of what so many of you are curious about and our pal ryan terpstra a member of the prude day listener uh prickle uh suggested that i do five minutes on it and move on otherwise it'll take up the whole show well we're not going to take up the whole show but for those of you who are unaware there was great confusion how the end of qualifying saturday at 5 50 p.m how Dalton Kellett with the AJ Foyt racing team was in the show while setting a new qualifying speed that was slower than William Power Team Penske, who had run one that was a little bit faster. So there's a lot of permutations to it. I would say if you really want to get the full explanation, check out racer.com. I actually wrote a whole story about it. So here's a couple of the questions that came in. Let's go to Sasha Khan 24. How you doing, Sasha? She says, I understand the correct process was followed Saturday, where the times outside the top 30 were not counted. But were you given any clarity on what the intent of the rule was? That's what I fail to understand. She says, why not have Saturday to set the Sunday's fast nine and fill the entire 33-car field instead of just the top 30? Then have the bumping period on Sunday where the slowest qualified car is bumped. Under the current rules, if Sunday were a complete rainout, I don't believe the fast nine occurs, and those positions are locked based on Saturday. But the last row shootout would then have to occur on Monday to fill that row as well? Seems like more work in cases of inclement weather. Just keep it simple and even casual fans. What say you, MP? Yeah, boy. Before we get to some of the permutation questions of what if this, what if that, the overall takeaway for me, Sasha, with this last chance qualifying deal is this. I, like you, don't understand the intent of protecting the top 30 cars. So I don't know. I haven't had a chance to speak with a Jay Fry or or similar on how this rule was created or signed off on but there is a weird thing here 
And I, I think this is maybe a big part of what has a lot of folks going, hey, I love the Indy 500. And yeah, qualifying's always been a little weird, right? It used to be done across two weekends. Uh, I'm old enough to have been part of that process in the past. And, you know, there's all kinds of things uh, that you could say were weird. But uh, they kind of made sense. It seemed to be all merit-based. You go fast, you get to play. You don't go fast, you don't get to play. And, yeah, maybe we lock in a certain number on the first day. And for those who qualify on the second day or, who knows, the second weekend, well, you're going to be starting 25th and beyond, uh, or 20th, whatever the number might be. Whomever follows after the first day or first weekend of qualifying, well, y'all are kind of stirring the pot after them and fighting for your positions after those have gotten in. Again, maybe a little weird, but at least you go, okay, so there's some sort of process of like, all right, you know, you're didn't get it done the first weekend so no you don't have a chance of being on pole we already determined that right it's a big part of Ari Leyendijk's qualifying record right uh he didn't start on pole he was back in the field but uh he actually set the fastest average qualifying speed ever got it cool I think am I right I could be wrong I don't know I'll take a look uh nonetheless what's weird here to me Sasha is this whole well if you're in the top 30 you're a made man or a made woman. You're in the mafia. Nobody can touch you. Huh? I, 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 I don't fully get that part. So that's where the confusion really came in here with Colton, with Colton, with Dalton, uh, with Dalton. There we go. Dalton Kellett, uh, the dumbest new IndyCar driver. Sorry, with Dalton. By the way, I've heard of this show, for those who don't know, is Mind Polished Turd. I leave in all the stupid things and all my errors and whatever else because, hey, it's me. Uh, we have a scenario where Dalton was in 30th place on the speed chart. We have a situation where he decided to go back out and take that time off the board, chose to erase that time, get into the fast lane, and go back out little bit before him, not too long before that, Will Power, who wasn't in the top 30, did the same, got into the fast lane, went out, set a 229 point whatever. Wasn't enough at that moment to get into the fast 30. I think it was 229.2838. Dalton was at a 229.250, just a smidge slower. Nonetheless, Will wasn't able to get into the fast 30. There you go. Dalton fearing Will might go again. Maybe some others could try and get in. Decided to go to the fast lane, surrender his 229.250, and go run again. Ended up doing a 228 something. Slower. Why wasn't power promoted ahead? This bizarre thing that I don't, understand the thought process like you sasha so what if he's in the top 30 i mean what's the arbitrary number top 25 top 32 top i mean it seems totally made up i get that 30 finishes out everything but the final row right p31 through p33 so i again i get the reason why they chose 30 but it could just as easily have been 27 or any other number I don't really get the 
if you're in the top 30, you are a made driver. Someone has to take you out for their speed to count. Power didn't, even though in hindsight it ended up being faster than Kellett, who took his time away, came back, did a 228. Didn't matter. Why? Yeah, this I think needs to get cleaned up for next year. So with you or like you, uh, big part of me says, why don't we do the whole field, as you mentioned, do everybody. Hey, the only people that are locked in are the folks who are, say, who knows? Pick whatever you want to do. Do we lock anyone in? Well, I guess we do because we don't want to rerun everybody. But whatever the number is, get everybody run. Get some official speeds in place. Uh, the idea that someone can go and run on Saturday trying to get into the field, have an actual speed that we all see, but then have that speed be invisible or non-existent because they're not in the top 30? It's just, there's something there that doesn't compute. Even though we all now, I think, understand it, not saying agree with it, but understand it, does it settle with you, though? That's the part where I think IndyCar needs to think twice. All right, I think everybody gets it now, but does it still feel right? Or That's why I think this needs some more tweaks going to get to one other little angle here on this so let's say they decide nope not changing anything going to do the same thing next year okay at least we know what to expect top 30 year made driver blah 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 blah. when we get to the actual lcq on sunday they need to do away with the well how you roll the car into the box for qualifying the first time out on Sunday morning. That's it. You can play with wing angle and whatnot, but you really cannot do anything else. You can't even cool the car down. I think that's hot garbage. If on Saturday you are allowed to make as many runs as you want, as you're able to, and each time make some sort of change, make some sort of modification on the quest of going faster, right? I know I just said a really obvious dumb thing. Qualifying, what's the goal? To go faster. Always trying to go faster. Cool. Well, if the goal is maximum speed, and on Saturday, teams are indeed allowed to change things. Is it ride height? Is it camber? Is it springs? Is it a whole bunch of, you could change everything. Go back out, try and go faster. Because multiple runs are allowed. Got it. If you have an LCQ on Sunday, where multiple runs are allowed, but all of a sudden, you say, but guess what? This time, although you can keep going, you really can't do a single thing to try and make your car better. You might come back and say, well, hey, idiot, they can make aerodynamic changes. True. By Sunday in the last chance qualifying, really, I mean, the title of it tells you where they're at. Do we really think those however many drivers 
are out there with the thing like super downforced up. Oh man, this thing's like just glued to the truck. No, they're already at maximum lack of downforce. They've already tilted the wings back as much as you possibly could. These are the most desperate people in the, well, they're not in, but trying to get into the field. So saying, hey, you could fart around with the wings. And I think, I think they can, yeah, they must be able to do tire pressure. But again, this isn't much. They're not going out for that first run, just bathed in downforce. So if you're going to let the people who have multiple chances on Saturday improve their cars, damn it, let the people on Sunday with the most to lose also the most to gain because they're slow. They need to gain. If you tell them, ah, really? The way you roll out onto pit lane for last chance qualifying is more or less what you got. Yesterday, you could try and be as excellent as you wanted. Today, sorry. Whatever you got's what you got. You know what you get? Super anticlimactic qualifying. And that's what I found LCQ to be on Sunday. It was a snooze fest. It was sad. And seeing Charlie Kimball's run, seeing R.C. Enerson's run, I'm not saying that they were going to rip the bodywork off and make 19 changes and find three miles an hour and get in the show. But damn it, if you're going to let them practice all week, give them extra boost on Friday to simulate qualifying runs, let them go out however many times they can on Saturday to try and get into the show and try and try and try and try. And then on Sunday in the most desperate session of the entire event, tell them, sorry, Every show up is what you got. You're screwed. We're just going to let you sit there and can't touch it. Can't do it. Can't even cool it down. It, it just goes against everything that's being done up to that point. So that to me, Sasha, a little bit of a soapbox here. I apologize. That's what I would change if they were to stay with it. Uh, Nathan at Nathan at Indy Nathan says, Indy qualifying is great, but with a confusion at the end of day one of qualifying, do you think the rules should be changed? Or is a problem with communication? Are there other changes you'd make with qualifying? Wanted to just read that because the bit in the middle, I think, is just what we have to acknowledge here. When you have the super convoluted qualifying thing, and it appears from what I was told by many people who were there, Jeremiah Morell in particular, sitting in the stands going, I have no idea what's going on. None of this is being communicated to us. None of this is coming across the PA. None of this is coming across a broadcast. If you're watching it on your phone, whatever, however you're receiving information, I guess the police are coming again. Um, we're blind. We had no idea what was going on. If you come up with something that arcane, Nathan, I would say communications to the great people who paid and turned up to watch and are sitting in stands or wherever else. Make sure they are clear. Uh, that stupid little story that I wrote, just trying to understand what happened and explain it. I had no idea. Okay. And I'm supposed to know this stuff. So this is probably just further proof that I'm an idiot, but it took three calls and probably, I don't know what the total amount of time was, but a lot of trying to get this understood. And even after I had it understood and kind of sort of written, I wanted to call back to the series and just 
confirmed that what I thought I knew and wrote about was still right. So if the people who are kind of stuck into this full time are a little bit clueless, yes, Nathan, there absolutely needs to be better communication. Uh, all right, one or two of the what ifs, and then we're going to move on to some other Indy 500 related content. Uh, Acer Rubrum, which I think is uh, Mer Burr. Let's see, backwards. I have no idea. Uh, based on your explanation of the qualifying rules, if Dalton Kellett had augured it into the wall on his last minute run, he would have ensured himself 30th spot with no official time, since there would have been no time for him to be bumped. Can that be true? Uh, yes, it absolutely would be true. Since he was in 30th place when he went out on that late run, which only gave Simone Di Silvestro time to get out. What was it, like 16 seconds until the gun went off to close qualifying? Had he stuck it in the wall, had he run the four official laps at 202 miles an hour, um, whatever it was, there was no forfeiting 30th. That's the big ticket. Had Simona gone faster than whatever time Dalton produced, as you mentioned, say he had, had done a willpower and, and hit the right rear, but maybe he did that on the first lap and he kept going and the thing was just really slow and actually took up all the time, that extra 16 seconds, and Simona didn't get out. He's 30th position. Say he had gone... Who knows? Maybe he had just had a crazy fast warm-up. Um, this wouldn't have happened. But let's just say somehow there was more time on the board uh, on the clock, and he'd gone out, and two or three drivers could have followed him before the gun went off. And they did not go faster than whatever speed he did. We know it was a 228 and change. He's 30th. Doesn't matter. Simona going out with 16 seconds left. She had to go faster than him to get 30th. She didn't, so she wasn't. Top 30 made drivers. A bizarre concept. So there you go. Stitch Turner, how you doing, Stitch? Says, loved all the podcast family. Says, from what you can tell, was the decision by AJ Foyt Racing to pull Kellett's time and run out the clock Saturday a stroke of evil genius or just plain dumb luck? Uh, it was such a brilliant move. Not quite perfectly executed, though, I can tell. I, I asked. And the first response was kind of a, well, of course, what do you think? And I'm like, wow. And I think I responded to the team like, y'all are playing chess. We're all playing checkers. Like, wow, you guys really, right? And if, for whatever reason, had the team or any team taken the time to fully grasp it, then, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there are some teams that fully knew the whole deal. Like, oh, okay, cool. All we got to do is be 30th, not have anyone faster. We could be sitting 30th as long as no one's faster and we can maybe eat up the clock. Cool. We're, we're just making things good for ourselves. So I fired back, fired that back after and published or pushed the story in that ended up going up. And then they came back and basically said, well, I don't know if it's the evil genius thing and we had the whole thing figured out. We just expected power to try and go again. And we wanted to make sure that, you know, we were there and, and we were going to go, but also use up a little bit of clock. So do I think this was 
a mastery of strategery type thing and really knowing everything about it and right that no matter what happened if they ran out enough clock there's no way anyone else could get in eh, again had they somehow added an extra 17 seconds to that run it would have been a full dr evil strategery master class wasn't quite there though as you mentioned still enough time for one driver to go had simona gone faster yeah uh boy they would not have looked very smart if anything we'd be talking about oh if only you had uh had trouble firing the car if only you'd found a way to burn like 20 seconds in the box right if only dalton had stalled it once or twice right had there been a little bit of intentional drama then they would have i think totally guaranteed no one could run after them and there you go i think they kind of sort of acknowledge stitch that we just wanted to go out and do our best to not make it easy for will to get out and whether they knew all the rest of the story or not on what their actions would cause let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say wow <laughs> uh dalton kellett uh colton kellett dalton herta uh dalton kellett whomever it might be love Dalt, by the way he's a really sweet kid um hey that kid not only is he in the indy 500 how many drivers took a shot at him on saturday something else that i just don't think enough respect is given it's not like being the slowest guy in the last guaranteed og spot is something where you're like oh you're the best no you're the slowest of the people who are in that happy top 30 how many people made runs and came up short some teams and drivers who no disrespect to Dalton, no disrespect to the Foyt team, but bigger fish, much bigger fish, much bigger budgets, much greater experience, etc., etc. And this kid, forget the last one minute or the last five minutes of qualifying. How many hours did that kid sit with people hammering away at P30 and coming up short? Wow. Wow. <laughs> that impressed me. Uh, Lori Carter, you're kind enough to close this little segment. Uh, not a question, just thank you for explaining the end of Saturday to us with uh, Will and Dalton. I was at the track, was very confused. Uh, I'd be real real honest here, Lori. Half of what I wrote and half of the investigation effort was just so I could understand it. So uh, I'm always happy when me clearing the cobwebs from my brain has some value to others. All right, we're going to go to our pal Brian P., a first-time questioner uh, says, best to my wife and I, thank you so much. Says, I have heard lots of talk of the temperature playing a role in racing at the 500. With this weekend looking great, will that help the racing? Or what would the temperature need to be like to help the racing? That's a great question, Brian. Thank you so much. Well, uh, basics here, real basics. If it's hot and like significantly hot, 80s plus uh you get thinner air and thinner air means not as much call it environmental downforce thicker air 
is what is going to help the cars make more downforce. I would suggest that most drivers will tell you they would prefer a cooler-ish race. Not saying it's going to be cold, but at least from the predictions that I saw today, we're talking about 70s instead of the 80s and 90s and whatnot. So I think we might have a little bit more downforce available. Does that mean that teams are going to pile on all the downforce they can? Not necessarily. But I know that at least they will have the opportunity to try and dial in more if they find they need some on race day. That being compared to, hey, we've put on as much as we can, but it's really hot and the air is really thin and we're just not making as much comfort. It's not as comfortable as our drivers would like it. Cars are just moving around a little bit too much. Therefore, the tires are getting worn up a little bit too much. So in general, cooler should be a little bit better. Um, Make cars hopefully stick a little bit better in the corners, consume tires a little bit less in that regard. But there's a flip side to that often where you go, okay, well, if we're too gripped up and the things are too glued to the track, well, going to be less likely that we are having cars falling off significantly, falling off in terms of performance. Tires usually are the main thing that are getting consumed at a higher rate than optimal. And that is often the thing that creates, I don't know if great racing, but a lack of predictability. So instead of, let's just say, the top 15 with ample downforce, cooler temperatures, everything being good and happy on the car, And those 15 go out and do their full stint and pit and refuel and put new tires on and then go back out and kind of sort of run in the same order, first through 15th, and then do it again and do it again. That's the the potential downside to it. If everyone's kind of comfy and most of the cars are in a pretty happy range there, you tend not to get a lot of adversity. So... When things start getting hot and things start not sticking much and tires start wearing out faster, start exposing chassis performance issues, it's where you get the drivers going backwards, others going forward, weird meetings of cars at different speeds that cause some to go high or low or back off, giving the person behind or others a chance to go by. It's it's kind of kind of weird, kind of not fun. But in terms of the the spectating side, that's where the fun often comes from, Brian. Another thing here too that has to be acknowledged, and it's not just the ambient temperature, it's the track temperature. When we got into the mid to high-ish 80s in practice last week, Oh boy, track temperatures, 115, 120 plus. There were some really not happy drivers. Oh boy, cars doing things that scared the living poop out of some of them. I interviewed three or four or five after I think the final Thursday, final practice on Thursday, keeping in mind that that was really the last day everyone was working on race setups before they got into qualifying mode. And I'm going to try and put that story together here. And there are some quotes in there that are just like, oh, 
Ryan Hunter Ray talking about the second half of his last race run stint on Thursday. Every lap, all he was trying to do was not crash. Okay, not find as much speed as he could. Not hey, I'm really just looking to tune this little thing here or there. It was. The entire second half of my last run was just simply trying not to destroy my car because the track temperatures were at a place where the thing is skating around like it's on ice. So, I hate to say it, but that's where a little bit of entertainment comes from for those watching. Not necessarily for those driving, Brian. At least forecast-wise, I don't think we're going to see that this weekend unless something changes. So maybe fewer heart attacks for your favorite drivers, maybe a little bit less uh, cars going straight back while others going forward. And that big kind of mismatch of performance halfway through towards the end of each stint. So I'm not quite ready yet to say, oh, it's going to be one for the ages passing nonstop. Uh, Matthew Mendenhall. Look at this two in a row, says avid listener, first time questioner. Matthew, thank you so much. And Brian, thank you as well. I love it when uh, when listeners send in questions for the first time. Matthew says pole speed was set at 231.685 average. And the last car was in at 228.353. Only a 3.3 mile an hour difference. I don't know why my voice just broke there. I'm going through puberty says the 2021 driver lineup is no doubt solid. All caps, by the way, Matthew. Look at that. says, but did qualifying speeds more so show us how competitive every team is for this year's Indy 500? I'd say what it shows us, showed us, Matthew, is last year with an aero screen that was brand new causing changes to the vehicular dynamics that took a lot of adjusting and learning. I'd say what we're really seeing with such a tiny, tiny difference between first and last in qualifying is the fact that we've had this chassis since 2012. It's been through a lot of aerodynamic changes, but this is a car that is by no means a question mark to the majority of the teams uh, that we're trying to get in. The engines from both Chevy and Honda they are also from 2012, <laughs> all right? Next year, it's going to turn 10, right? I don't know what we're going to get them, but, jeez, uh, they're growing up to be big boys and big girls. Like, they're old. You know, these things are so highly developed. Uh, we're just, I think, at a stage, Matthew, where you go, all right, variances, the type of variances that we saw in the first little bit with this formula, yeah, they're long gone. These motors are so amazing, developed to such a high level by Ilmore Engineering, Chevy Racing, and Honda Performance Development that it's all good, right? It truly, they're all amazing. Chassis-wise, I'd say as well, uh, there's just not a lot of mystery left. Last year, definitely. Last year, a lot of the conversations was having with race engineers and whatnot. Yeah, boy, you know... Uh, the Indy 500 isn't the first time we've used AeroScreen. We've, we've used it all season, but here in a big speedway like this, we're having to learn a lot of things about how it affects the car, how the weight moves, rolls, affects everything. We're having to figure this out. Well, 
typical racing field, typical racer mentality. They have uh, all studied and learned and come back very, very, very smart. So I'd say this is the big thing to put down for the uh, the speed that we have seen. And one other quick note, and I apologize, I don't actually screen or look through all the questions as they come in before I start, kind of take them as I scroll. We saw something last year that carried over for sure in qualifying, and it I was surprised that it was still a thing, less of a thing though, and that is going to high boost definitely favored the Hondas last year. So they run around in practice and the race at Indianapolis at 1.3 bar, 1300 millibars of turbo boost. Prior to the aero screen, that got bumped up to 1.4 and 45, 40, 45 horsepower hike for qualifying. Helped put up a bigger number, looked better. Got it. Uh, the move to 1.5 bar starting last year was done for one reason alone, and that was, hey, we just bolted on an extra 60 pounds with the aero screen. That 60 pounds is a real performance killer if we don't try and compensate for it. So how do we do that? Well, we have our road and street course, call it maximum boost that we use, Never really done that here in qualifying. We've always gone to the medium level boost. And again, practice and race day boost is at low boost. That's what it's been forever. So we've gone from low and then a temporary move to high, uh, medium for qualifying pre aero screen to, hey, got to compensate for that extra 60 pounds. We're going high boost now, which they did last year. At medium. There really wasn't anything to separate Chevy and Honda most years. Going too high, I, I have ideas and thoughts as to why. I, I'd be lying if I said I knew all the reasons, but at high boost on the super speedway, there's certainly something that favors the Hondas. You go, well, but they use it on the road and street courses, and we don't necessarily see that separation there. True. We're talking about maximum sustained speed, right? So not shifting up, shifting down, braking, turning, re-accelerating. You know, we're not talking all the variances of performances going up and down throughout a road or street course lap. We're talking 12,000 RPMs or close enough, top gear, top one or two gears, but just maximum, maximum performance at high boost. There's something extra that the Hondas have. That's why we saw... Seven out of the fast nine being Hondas last uh, last year. I think it was eight. Was it? I think Renus maybe was the only one last year. I forget. But anyways, two years in a row we've seen at high boost the Hondas got something. What was cool though was our friends at Chevy. They worked hard at it. They didn't have enough to get pole. They came really really close though with Renus and Ed Carpenter, but. Uh, they got close, but they didn't get all the way. So there was still that Honda high boost thing. What does that mean for next year? I mean, if we just had to go off of data, right? Two years, high boost, qualifying, Honda, period, end of sentence. It wouldn't be crazy to suggest prepare yourself for it next year. I guess that's all I'm saying. And be really pleasantly surprised if it changes. 
Uh, Sasha Khan, you're back. You say in 2011, last year, the previous chassis bumped cars were running 221 mile an hour compared to, uh, the pole 227.4, roughly six mile per hour difference came with all cars running a spec Honda engine, uh, in 2021, a car that was just put together a couple months ago and had run very few laps of practice at the speedway can run just over four mile an hour slower than the pole speed, even with a different engine supplier. How does that happen? Are the cars even more spec than they were in 2011 or something else at play? This is Sasha referring to Top Gun Racing. Yeah, this is this is something that I've, I shared with a couple of friends, a couple of listeners as well. I'm trying to think of the, the most honest way to say this. There are a lot of folks that I read heard on the broadcast as well, giving Top Gun Racing lots of applause, right? Oh, man, they did so well. They did so great. They came really close, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not taking away the effort that they put in, the work they put in, any of that. But that four-mile-an-hour difference that you mentioned, Sasha, there's a mistake that has come with this. Uh, the... 226 227 i think that rc enerson was able to run and rc is amazing by the way right put that kid in a competitive team and i think he is not only shaking up the establishment but getting signed quickly but nonetheless the difference between new team not a lot of very experienced indycar people there not everybody that frankly has been able to get a job in IndyCar uh, or, or sustain a job in IndyCar. Uh, there are a number of those folks as a part of the t- that were part of the team there. Uh, the crew chief, Roy Wilkerson, great guy, crazy experienced. Can't do it all himself, though. Um, did his absolute best. Engineer there. Don't know him, but I know a lot of people that do. Eric Peterson say, guys, really super good. Again, all super positive stuff. But that four or five mile an hour, whatever, difference between RC in his Top Gun Chevy being put together and a pole-winning Ganassi Andretti Carpenter-type uh, you know, front-row effort, it's night and day. So here's the cool part that gets misunderstood. Hey, they were only like four miles an hour average speed off, right? It's amazing. Pretty much anybody can do that. Pretty much any team can do that. Take a USF 2000 team that is just getting to know their Tatus chassis. And with a decent engineer and a decent crew chief and a solid driver they can go do that same speed it's in the truly experienced teams where they know everything to do and and how to do everything better that makes the difference so body fit we know is worth a mile an hour or more we know that period and was this a case of the Top Gun racing car having a body fit that was as perfect 
as the Ed Carpenter or Ganassi or Andretti cars? No, not at all. Is this knowing all the areas to reduce maximum amount of friction in qualifying trim? Absolutely not. Is this having the budget to do all of those things, to develop all of those things? It is not. So there's a reason why small teams tend to struggle and big teams don't. It's not just because the driver isn't as good or the engineer isn't as good. It's often a lot of small things where you go, aha, add all them up in your four to five miles an hour slower. Also, budget is certainly something you have to think about. The amount of time big teams spend getting rid of a zillionth iota of friction compared to whatever that component had last year for friction that might have slowed the car in a straight line. That's a factor too. So I know when we showed up with our Genoa Racing Indy Lights team at the 1997 Indy 500, which was our first race, we didn't know our proverbial asses from a hole in the ground. We had bought a almost unused ex-AJ Foyt Racing Delara. They had bought Delaras, decided they wanted G-Forces. We got a single Delara. There was no information that came with it. There was no setup sheets. There was no do this this way, do that that way. Nothing we were, again, an Indy Lights team that was totally new to all this stuff. We'd done ovals, obviously, because that's what you have in Indy Lights, but there's no body fit in Indy Lights. There's no this. There, We were just a team stepping up, trying to do our best. And we were very fortunate to know the people at Delara a little bit. They were very active back then in helping their teams, providing some starting, some baseline setup info to play with great uh we had a really amazing race engineer slash team owner and thomas knapp i was his assistant both assistant team manager and assistant engineer and we had a great driver when it comes to ovals and greg ray and greg was as brave as they came thomas two of them had many years of relationship and really got a lot out of each other we were just an indy lights team bolting this car together it was almost, you know, an Ikea instruction manual would have been more helpful than what we had because we didn't have anything. We just put it together how we figured it should go together. And we were in a brand new era, brand new formula. It was the first year for those IRL cars, uh, getting you know, trading them out, having used the former cart cars the year before. And so in that first year where not a lot of teams had a huge advantage over the others we were able to show very well we were fast and it wasn't because we built a car better than everyone else it's because we had a really great driver really great engineer and everything else about the car was just done properly nothing was super massaged and perfected but it was just done properly as time went on i mean we just say starting the next year more teams were able to spend more time to try and reduce friction, reduce losses, perfect the body fits and whatnot, and all of a sudden, speeds start creeping up, 
things get a little bit harder to achieve and go faster for those who are a little bit behind. Imagine coming in, as Top Gun Racing has done here, Sasha, to close this thread, year nine, what is it, of the formula? There are a lot of teams who have been doing this for a long time with this chassis, with this engine, who know all the tricks. And you take a team that's new and doesn't, and again, just being honest, that team, if they want to succeed, probably going to have to look at some upgrades in a number of areas. Not necessarily talking engineering and, and crew chief, but just there are some areas where if they want to truly compete, uh, just showing up and hoping and praying is not really going to get you there. Um, there's a big, big difference between pole and being four miles an hour off these days. That's why, to me, it is not impressive. That's why whatever the broadcasters and other folks are saying how close they came. No, they were <laughs> they were a mile off. And again, I'm not trying to be mean or, or whatever else. I'm just saying that while that number is small, compared to this previous formula, as you mentioned, today, yeah, it's a giant number. Just being one to two miles an hour off of make it into the show is monstrous. So what we saw was a small team that was late to the show. There weren't a lot of like, whoa, super crazy high caliber people sitting around waiting to be hired. And although RC did everything in his power and Peterson and Wilkerson did everything in their power, they were never even close. It looks like it by the numbers, but in reality, they may as well have been a hundred miles an hour off. That's how far they were from getting into the show. So <sighs> there you go. Uh, Jeffrey may now come on. We've got another new person submitting a question. Oh, this makes me, and I, I think I am sneaking a look at maybe some others as well. Uh, Jeffrey may. Thanks for sending this in. He says, just started listening to the podcast at the beginning of the season. I enjoyed it a lot. Well, I appreciate your bad taste in podcast, Jeffrey. But uh says, first time asking a question, and I'm slightly new to following IndyCar full-time. So what's the purpose of the warm-up practice session on Sunday before the race? Can the teams change anything during the warm-up or in the time between the end of warm-up and the start of the race? Absolutely, Jeffrey. Uh, they can change anything they want. Uh, so, yeah, uh, fully wide open. Nothing is locked down or restricted. That final warm-up session, general purpose for it is, hey, having just made significant changes to the car for qualifying. Road course, street course, oval, you name it. Uh, if a warm-up is being held before the race, and this is, I'm not so much just talking about 2021, just saying historically. If there's a warm-up session before the race, really got a couple reasons for it or a couple goals there i'd say the the biggest one though is realizing that in practice for most of the practice sessions usually the one leading into qualifying you'll get a good portion of that being focused on qualifying setups but you have the situation where teams are working in race trim race setup then switch into this kind of sort of unique qualifying setup qualifying goal there could be some componentry on the car that really is truly uh, 
just meant for qualifying to make the car go a little bit faster in a short burst, not something that would last or, or, you know, sustain the entire race, but Hey, you can do limited number of laps on the, these components and you'll get the most out of them. I'd say the warm up then is, has always been a final vehicle check because you've obviously coming out of qualifying setup, going into race setup, final chance to not only make sure the car is right and everything is correct. There could have been an engine change. There could have been a variety of things that happened. This really is the last opportunity to make sure the vehicle is right before you go race. So would say, think of it as a warm-up session. I'm sorry, warm-up session. A practice session before a basketball game. Uh, Absolutely commonplace for teams to go out. Could be an hour before, could be whatever time before the game, but they'll shoot around. They will practice. If it's a new play they're thinking of doing or a new twist, maybe the lineup's a little bit different, which could be the equivalent of the setup being different. They want to workshop a couple things. They'll do that. Go back in, uh, cool off, get dressed properly, come out, and then play the game that counts. So probably think of it more along those lines. Last little twist here, though, Jeffrey, is this. Sometimes you have practice that does not go well. Sometimes you have a car in qualifying that is very slow, and you have a poor starting position. Well, You can't fix the starting position in a warm-up, but you sure can try something different and hopefully find whatever speed was missing that you think can be applied in the race. So it's not uncommon for a team to just massively swing and miss in qualifying. And you go, all right, uh, boy, I realize the race doesn't use the qualifying setup close you know it's not too far off don't get me wrong but realize that we're gonna be a little bit off here and we're gonna want to try something for the teams who are expected to be up front and totally miss the warm-up is often the we threw the kitchen sink at it (laughs) we did everything but turned the car upside down and backwards so yeah let's go give this a try and hopefully they find a lot of speed while they're starting towards the back of the pack they found something that hopefully they can use to correct some of that. So thanks for sending that in, Jeffrey. All right, we're motoring on. Where are we going here? Cassie Johnson. Johnston. Why did I call you Johnson? I'm sorry, Cassie. I suck. Uh, thanks for sending this in, by the way. She says, hi, MP. I even got an exclamation point on that. That makes my day, Cassie. She says, uh, we were there on pole and bump day, and from our seat, it looked like there were more women working on pit lane than we've ever seen before. She says, not just at Pareto Autosport, but paddock-wide. Is that the case? And if so, yay! She also says, best to you, your wife, and your kitties. To my knowledge, Cassie, to my eyes, yes, indeed. There are more women than I've ever seen, and it just brings... A crazy, happy, happy little, ah, to my heart, relief, maybe, if anything. And hmm, I hope, I really hope that this is just something that we don't end up talking about much more 
I don't know. How long do you think, Cassie? The next couple years, five years, ten? I don't know what the time frame is, but it's that same thing of like, hey, this type of person, this type of human being was the first to do something. And there was no representation by that type of person before they did that thing. And you hope that in a short amount of time, that's no longer a thing to talk about. Mention at the outset, some new t-shirts and celebrating our, our pal Willie T. Ribs, 30th anniversary, overstating the obvious. He was the first black person in 1991. We had George Mack in 2002. Since then, crickets. We hope this is going to get resolved in the next couple years with the race for quality and change, the Force Indy program. Uh, I'm hoping it's Miles Rowe, but I'm hoping it's Miles plus more kids of color. Great, amazing, let's do that. Women on pit lane in important roles. Women on the timing stand in important roles. I've seen this increase, Cassie, obviously with... Beth and her program, it's doubled, tripled, quadrupled the number with a single team, which is amazing. Uh, but I hope, I really do hope, let's stop the hope. I want this to be something that normalizes women in important roles. Hell, unimportant roles. I, I, all roles. Because trust me, there's men on pit lane in really unimportant roles. Um as well. I just hope that Beth's team and the increased number of women on other teams, I don't know her name, but there's a woman that I saw working on the Top Gun program, for example, just more women on more teams. I just need and want this to hopefully normalize that picture for the rest of the people who own IndyCar teams or manage IndyCar teams and wield the power of decision-making on who works within the series. They're the gatekeepers. They really are. All the IndyCar teams are privately owned. IndyCar does not own them, does not dictate who does what or where. So it is run down the list from Foyt's to Andretti's to Ganassi's to Penske's to Carpenter's to so on to so on to so on. It is the owners of the teams and the managers of the teams who decide who gets to play in IndyCar. Extend this to every other series as well. Uh, same thing. I just really do want this, like black drivers, brown drivers, yellow drivers, whatever color drivers, gender. Uh, I've gone on this little thing, this little rant a million times, so I'm going to keep this super short because you don't need to hear it again. But man, woman, pit lane, IndyCar, just normal. That's what we got to have. And I think, I think we could be doing some really good progress in this area this year, Cassie. I really do. And we're still that unfortunate stage of needing to celebrate this shift. Maybe we won't sometime soon. And I'll just bring it up because it, it never stops being a fact. My wife is the most kick-ass woman that I know. 
I have always been drawn to strong, self-owning, take no earmuffs, shit from anybody, women. I have never been good, never been happy with the taking a step back, quieting the voice, just right, never, that's never made sense with me. Not saying that's right, just saying how my brain and spirit is wired. So kick-ass women who are not just equal but possibly above anything that I can do or other men can do, that's just been a normal part of my life for the majority of it. And so this is where this evolution that we are seeing happen in front of us fits and makes sense. I've been so fortunate, and I think it might have been a little bit of an exception to the rule, Cassie, just to close on this topic. I've been really fortunate throughout my career to have been a chief mechanic for multiple women racers, to work alongside women in terms of being a mechanic, uh, like going back since about 89 or 1990 is the first time that I think I worked with um, a woman racer, woman by the name of Arlie Goldberg. Uh, she was talented, not crazy talented. That's most of our realities, right? Most of us aren't crazy talented, but got to know her, got to understand her, and what it was like for her trying to do some things in pro racing where yeah, it really wasn't a common thing or well accepted and working with women uh, on the mechanic side and you go, wow, Michelle over here is awesome. Truly. She's awesome. And she is awesome as a person and awesome at her job. And she's kind of the only one that I know at Sears point, among all the shops and the hundreds of people working here, she's the only woman that I know working for a team, turning wrenches and just being her own self fully possessed of her entire being and being awesome and being accepted for that. And I'm just saying these things because I'm so thankful to have had that and have worked with a number of other women as well, et cetera, et cetera. But I know that my background by chance is so different than many others who thankfully it looks like here in the Lord's year of 2021 is coming to realize, yeah, let's actually do some smart hiring going forward and not just wait on whoever shows up at the door, but actually think about how do we put our team together? Does having an all male crew benefit us in any way well i can't think of how that would benefit you because it there's very few things in life where you say if it's all one thing it's the best in this instance i think we're we're heading in the right direction cassie but i'll tell you what next year indy 500 is going to tell us something let's just we're going to obviously hope that beth and the team is there but let's just picture for a moment that they're They've gone invisible. They're there, but we can't see any of them. I really hope that we look throughout the other 
32 plus entries and see more women than we do right now, that would tell me maybe this was all, all really impactful in the way that we had hoped in 2021. Daniel Ingleton, you're going to take us here into two questions. This is MP, fantastic for IndyCar with Pareto Autosport, making the show with Beth uh, Pareto's intimating potential future races. Do you think it would only be with Silvestro, or if she's not available, would someone from the W Series be able to step up? It's an interesting one, Daniel. I can't imagine that Beth would want to have anyone other than Simona because she's the best (laughs) and she's the most experienced. There's almost nowhere we could go where she hasn't raced. Uh, So that would be the first thing. There's a little bit of a weird deal, and I don't want to get too deep into it because I've heard it secondhand. Well, let me rephrase. I've heard it firsthand because the person told it to me, so what they said was direct and first, I guess. But the information is its not something I've been able to confirm, but it sounded real, knowing who it came from. And uh, on the topic of could you be available to drive and was just told uh, there's a little bit of a please don't cherry-pick from our drivers and or... Hey, when we get the season going, you know, drivers, please don't diversify yourself too much and go off here and there and potentially lose you to a series or there's a conflict, but you've got a bigger opportunity somewhere else. Like if we're going to go with you and you're going to be part of this new W series season, uh, let's try and focus on that first and foremost and get through it. So I'm not saying that's 100% accurate. I'm just saying as it was presented to me, there just seemed to be a little bit of a, hey, we kind of don't want to dismantle this thing a little bit uh, while we're trying to put on a season. So I would say, Daniel, knowing that Simona's schedule with Porsche is not exactly overwhelmingly busy, that depending on where Beth might be able to rock up and race, at uh, future events in 2021, my guess would be it would have to align with Simona's schedule. And so, yeah, I just, can I want there to be great competition for that seat because that tells us we have a growing number of amazing, ready-to-go-kick-ass type women uh, at the IndyCar level. Would say for right now, at least, I'm struggling to think of who you would plug into that car that would be better than Simona. And you know, there's also the hey, they're working together right now. They're they're they've gone through the wars already just to get into the race. Unless there's some sort of boy, uh, one side or the other did not live up to expectations. We're not going to do this together again, type deal, which I would struggle to uh, see happening. I think there's just really something good being developed here. So can't imagine Daniel would be with anyone else. Don't know where they would race, but uh, I don't know. Pick a high-profile event where a lot of people watch, and that might be a place to consider. Daniel, hey, someone with your same name is back again. MP, how big of a Code Brown moment for Will Power and Team Penske was at turn two, brush of the wall on lap four. Massive respect for him. 
to stick it out and hold on. Oh, Michael Steenblick as well. You mentioned his powers drive on Sunday to get into the 500, brushing the wall and holding on, never lifting, going to go down as one of the top quality attempts ever. That was crazy. Yeah, I don't recall the throttle trace because keep in mind they show the little bar graph on tv i think with lights or whatever little green lights i don't recall the rest of that lap whether it was just green the whole way or if there was a tiny lift there should have been a lift uh he would have been insane if he did not lift so if he didn't lift guys uh yes but we already know the guy's completely certified psycho that's why we love him um yeah Uh, the toe out that was being spoken about from him hitting the wall and take if you're looking at the from the back of the car forward. And if you're thinking about that right rear tire, from what they were saying from him hitting the wall, there was toe out, which would have taken the right rear wheel and pointed the front of it outward. That's like some crazy cart stuff. That's where the back end is just spinning around and around and around going in circles with that suspension alignment. Uh, yeah, um, you normally don't really do that at the Indy 500. Uh, yeah, again, unless there's some radical thing where you're like, hey, we can't get the car to rotate properly. Well, that's a way to do it. That's like a rallying setup, right? Where you're just spending the whole lap in the forest or wherever with the thing cocked sideways. That's not an Indy 500 qualifying or race or anything set up. They wouldn't do that on the two-seater, okay? I mean, ah! So, at least looking at what the television images delivered, taking it on their word that there was toe out, I don't know if I really saw much to make me think, oh my gosh, that's crazy toe out. But even if there was just a little bit extra than there was before, the back of the car would have been trying to go around. That right rear tire would have been trying to steer the car around while he's trying to turn left. The back of the car is trying to go right. Um, Anything in this area would have just been insane. So, yes, massive respect. Would also say that power, understanding that, hey, with these stupid rules where we can't cool down the car and we can't do this, can't do that. I really do have one shot. This is it. Got to go do it. And yeah, uh, just got up into the wall and yeah, that wasn't great. If I back it down and this fourth lap is a stinker, well, then I'm not going to get to play Indy 500 because they do keep score on the speed part. Uh, so thankfully he did not back it down. Um, looking here, uh, yeah. So lap three, two twenty eight point eight for power, two twenty seven point five on that fourth lap, one point three miles an hour slower. That's it. And yeah, that two twenty seven five, not great. But huh? Like really, truly, most other drivers. That's a 2.15. That's a 2.20 at most. Uh, that's really backing it down. But because it's willpower, um, almost an imperceptible uh, loss of overall momentum on that lap. 
I mean, looking at that, you hit the wall speed for lap four. Uh, I'm looking here at that 227.5. It was still faster than anything in terms of final laps produced by R.C. Enerson, Charlie Kimball, R.C. Enerson again, Charlie Kimball again, um, and was only three-tenths of a mile an hour slower than Simona's fourth and final lap, where she didn't hit the wall and have a little bit of extra toe out. So, yes, confirmation point number 973 that William Power, totally insane, and love him and would never, ever, 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 ever hope for him to change. So how crazy. To your point, Michael, not only crazy, but yes, that has to go into the annals of what? I'm going to make a note here and reach out to the team because what they would have done after qualifying too, uh, what they do after every major session is uh, what's called a set down. So you often hear about setup, right? What's the chassis setup change? What have they done for the setup? Well, when they come off the track, session's over, or they're just, again, for a long indie practice day, qualifying, whatever, first thing they'll do is go back to the garage, roll it onto the setup pad, and do what's called a set down. And that is them documenting all the, uh, the alignment and setup numbers on the car. Uh, as it came off the track. So there are sometimes changes that take place on pit lane. You raise the ride height a little bit, change a wing angle, do whatever. You don't necessarily see them then try and measure it and quantify it then. Uh, They do that when they get back to the garage or the trailer or wherever they might be at whatever race. So they will have done a set down on Will's car. And I need to reach out and see if uh, I can get the number on how much extra toe out was added um yeah thanks guys now i'm finally thinking of that like a day or two later uh we got a little topic here of hey so the chevy teams weren't necessarily kicking a whole ton of butt in qualifying but why on earth was one team capable of coming close to pole and say the biggest team in team penske so not uh, our pal, Hrishi Despond, and if I don't say this often enough, Hrishi, and to our other folks who send in questions, I appreciate you. Really do. You always send in good stuff, Hrishi. So it's two years in a row that Penske has not been a factor in the Fast 9 qualifying. Where are they coming up short, particularly at IMS? Do you think their race pace is sufficient to be able to drive through the field? Latter part here of that question, Hrishi, yeah. I'm pretty confident that we're going to see one or more Penske drivers move forward. Uh, I think Joseph could be one of them. He is, that guy's a a gamer, right? That guy's a total game day deliverer, performer, or all kinds of er. So I just always got to count Joseph in. Our pal, Scotty McLaughlin, and how awesome was he a couple days ago in the podcast, right? Recorded it twice. My uh, little interim, not great, travel, shorty, crappy, cheapo laptop that I've had for uh, a while since my wife's been sick and we do a lot of traveling every week. 
Uh, this thing's been drafted in to record the podcast and for whatever reason, it doesn't like the software that I record it with. And so it crashed while saving Scotty's, uh, day at indie episode and just sent him a little note. Uh, hey brother, thanks so much. I do apologize though. You know, this thing, uh, just ate itself, but, uh, it was like two hours after two hours later and he should have been relaxing and sleeping or doing whatever. And, uh, he's like, no mate, let's do it. Let's do it again. And I'm like, what? Uh, yeah. So anyways, just how do you not love that guy? Nonetheless, what's Scotty's day going to be like? I don't know. Um, I think I mentioned this week or two ago. The only areas that are going to be negative for Scotty are the proverbial, you don't know what you don't know, right? Has he been through multiple stints at the Indy 500 to know what chassis changes to call for? I shouldn't say chassis changes, aero changes, tire pressure changes and whatnot. Does he know exactly how to keep the car tuned up through a 500-mile event at Indianapolis? No. Uh, Does that mean he's going to struggle and fail? No, by no means. But does that mean he might not be as crisp and as fast uh, throughout the entire race as some of the veterans? Yeah, wouldn't be a surprise. That tends to be the normal routine for a rookie there. But I expect Scotty to let us know that he's there and crazy talented. Power? Uh, I hoping that with the back of the field starting position, he doesn't get caught up in in any silliness, but all that guy does is go forward. So I expect that to happen. Pagano. I have no idea. I've never heard a driver happier after blowing an engine than Simon on Sunday. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's going to make it into, I'm trying to do one of my little brain dump columns. I'll see if I have, the time and ability to do that. But um, I don't know if I've ever seen someone so confident, so pleased, so everything after losing a motor. It was almost like, yeah, that's right. This is how we dominate. Uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing and making things up a little bit, but I was just really surprised. I've never seen a driver so positive. Like, yeah, you bet. We're going to get him, and the car is great and amazing. And yeah, psh. Sometimes they blow up, whatever. Like, wow, okay, dude. So we'll see what happens with Simon. The The Simon Pagano story is this. On the, the days he feels ready and confident of giving it his all, we feel it and we know it. On the days where he lets a little bit of caution ride with him the whole time, say there's been maybe too many of those throughout his career we don't always know he's in the show talking about the 2019 indy 500 winner though and boy he was good that day and boy he put the smack down on a lot of people that's peak simon that is the oh my gosh they waved the green flag and instantly we were all fighting over second place because that guy was just a hundred percent committed to dominating. Some of the reasons, a lot of the reasons why we look at Simon's record at Penske. And there are some years where you go, Ooh, what, what, what wasn't working there? It's because he is not a natural risk taker. And when he forces himself to do that, we can see some spectacular results. Compare that to 
some of his teammates, some of the other drivers in the field where you go, yeah, they're not exactly just making bonehead decisions and wantonly trying to uh, throw away a good result, but you can't really let off the thrall at all these days. And if you do, you see it in the results. Well, let me rephrase it. You don't see it because you don't really see them because they're way behind. I don't know what we're going to see from Simon Pagano on Sunday, but I do know that if he comes in with a decision and action to mollywop everything and everybody in sight, that guy can absolutely go to the front and win the race. If he doesn't, there you go. So I do, Hrishi, for sure, think we're going to see one or two Penske drivers going forward. I don't feel like it's going to be three or four. Famous last words. We'll see what happens. Um, there are a couple other questions here that piggyback off of your first about Penske not being part of the Fast 9 the last couple of years. Uh, so I'll just read some of those. Daniel Ingleton, you're back as well. Uh, Andrew Drybelvis, let's go with you. He says, why do you think Carpenter and VK perform better in qualifying? Well, their teammate Connor Daly has been far away and better in the practice session. Says Connor has been at the top of the charts in every session except for qualifying. While Ed and Renus... I haven't really been at the top. Tony Chef 20 from Reddit says, what are ECR's chances of having all their cars in the top 10 at the end of the race? Obviously, Ed and Renus's cars are fast. Daly didn't qualify the best, but he's been uh, just raving about his car and race trim on Twitter. Uh, let's see. He also mentioned similarly, if Renus runs well in the 500, winning maybe or just getting a top five, does this help ECR retain him in the offseason? From what I understand, since the last time we spoke about this, I believe he has a, uh, a multi-year contract. I mean, it's always a case, though, of trying to prove to a driver that they should stay, even if they're obligated to be there for a couple of years. You never want to give them a reason, you know, first year into a multi-year contract to start walking down to other trucks and saying, hey, you guys constantly kick our butt. Uh, I don't know if I can get here next year, but I want to find out if we can. Uh, want to have your lawyers call my lawyers, and then maybe they can call my team. I'm not saying Renus would do this. I'm just saying in general, you always want to give talent, young or old, you always want to give race-winning talent a reason to never think about going to that team next door. Right now, I think Renus would be nuts to look to go elsewhere because it seems like ECR is really hitting a strong patch, winning on a road course for the first time in, what, since 2016 with Joseph, and now running super strong in qualifying. Uh, hopefully the 500 goes well for them, but uh, yeah, I, I think they're giving Renus every reason to, uh, to want to stay. But let's come back to the well, the daily separation from the other two and also the just the general, why was ECR farther up, way farther up than Penske, and yet they've got the same engines? Could there be a difference? I saw some questions. Realize that a lot of questions on this topic came in, so Jim chose kind of a good sample, but not all of them. But I did see one on social media about, is there like an actual engine difference? You know, could the, the ECR cars have gotten something, you know, a little bit of a hotter build or tune than the Penske ones? Answer's no. Blind draws draws on all of it. There's no, uh, we're going to give the, them a good one and, and them a, a clunker. 
that's not the case at all. Uh, so no, uh, they're all equally good. Just a case really where I don't know the paths that team Penske has gone down in terms of their super speedway research and development, but it's been down a path that isn't right. And that's not being critical. That's just acknowledging the obvious. You look at the ECR team and speaking with Scott Dixon today in our day at Indy, you know, one of the things he mentioned about their cars in particular was the body fit, like, wow, incredible. And it matters, right? What are we fighting over here? Like some of the previous questions, little fractions of speed to get in really short difference between P1 and P33. Well, if you've got little fractions from this thing that you do, add that onto some little fractions to another thing that you do and some others and some others. It's where you start to get the difference. So aerodynamically, I would say or suggest the Penske cars are likely just as beautifully body fitted and, and perfected, right? Be hard to think that those cars were not. Would suggest maybe we're talking more mechanical, right? These cars come out of corners and go down long straightaways twice a lap at Indy. And depending on how the car is going through the corner, how it is sitting, how much the tires are scrubbing, falling over on itself, depending on a couple of little factors, there is an absolute possibility, if not likelihood, where you go, hey, in this really imperceptibly different thing that we've decided to do, we're scrubbing a tiny bit more speed through turn two or turn four. Ah, That's going to hurt down the straightaway. That's going to take our average speed down. We're not going to see the same big top speed going into turn one or turn three because we're losing a little bit of the too much of that speed and again it's a tiny amount but you do that four times a lap you go through those corner four times do that for four laps it adds up so was just talking to dixon about that too and i forget what year it was like i don't know 2016 seven whatever it was wasn't so long ago the Ganassi cars just had nothing, <laughs> nothing. And they spent as much money as anybody and did everything in their power to be amazing at Indy. And they weren't. And it's so frustrating because what happens? Here's the thing. Here's the big thing. And it hurts. You find out. We're talking more, again, qualifying maximum potential speed than, say, race day stuff you find out yeah our cars aren't going to be great we're going to qualify 28th we might improve a little bit but you know we're 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 probably going to be racing for 15th if things go super well but you know we're going to be nowhere near the pole we know that but in race trim we're not going to just rocket to the front if you're 29th in qualifying again it's going to be pretty rare that you're magically you know fighting for the top three soon into the race 
again, there are some exceptions, but by and large, the teams that qualified poorly, uh, they only have so much potential that they can achieve in the race. The thing that sucks, guys, and I've been there, uh, I've been there, oh boy, is when you realize, oh, we got nothing. Oh, man. And then every session turns into hope, not knowledge of like, all right, I, I, okay, I can see we're a little bit off here, or a little bit too much rake, a little bit too much whatever. Okay, we've got to rethink this a little bit, but, you know, all right, I think we got it. No, this is more a philosophy. This is more a, a game plan. You know, let's just take it out of technical terms. It's more of a game plan, right? I don't know if you're a, if you watched American football, you watch some football games and there are some very good teams, amazing teams that in some games get destroyed by teams that have no business destroying them. And you go, what, (laughs) what just happened here? There's no way. This little crappy-ish team should beat, but they did. And you go, what happened? It's game plan, right? They came up with plays that were better than the other teams. Confused them, intercepted them, sacked them, did whatever it was. But hey, even though it's a smaller, lesser team with players that aren't necessarily as good as the others, hey, they came up with a better strategy and game plan that ended up beating the bigger team. We have that every year at Indy, right? Did did anyone notice Ed Carpenter? Ed Carpenter, I'm sorry. Ed Jones, Pietro Fittipaldi, the Dale Coyne racing team? What? I mean, yeah. Not like leading, right? They weren't on pole, but um, yeah. Uh, hey, Ed Jones, welcome to right between Alexander Rossi and Pato Award. Hey, Pietro Fittipaldi in 13th. Welcome to right in front of Rosenquist, Kumasato, Hinchcliffe, and on and on and on. Right? Little team by comparison. Doesn't mean lack of talent, but just smaller team. We know they have way less money than almost everyone else. And yet, very good engineers, very good drivers. The development path. They chose to go down, led by Olivier Boisson, who's freaking brilliant, ended up being a smarter one than some much bigger teams, Chevy or Honda. And you go, well, that's what I love. This is our little upset. This is the Jacksonville Jaguars knocking off the Kansas City Chiefs on a Monday night football game or whatever else. Wow game plan so just bringing that back to uh to racing an indy 500 that game plan for them is their decisions on what to develop what they think is going to make speed at the indy 500 from a damping standpoint from an overall suspension standpoint from a friction material and fluid material and aerodynamic standpoint and all kinds and kinds of things all the zillion little areas that you polish on, massage on, and try and do a little bit different where the rules allow to make your car better than the other person's. Isn't it awesome when we see truly a Ganassi Andretti Carpenter, Carpenter Ganassi Ganassi, Andretti Autosport 
P eight Meyer shank racing y'all Elio Castro Nevis. And, uh, my long time love, hate relationship with crew chief, Matt Swan. It's all love actually. Um, Meyer shank racing and P eight y'all first time with that extra car. And we know Elio can drive. We know Jack Harvey can drive. We're going to get to Jack Harvey in a little bit. I think in this episode about his tire, um, Meyer shank racing y'all P eight qualifying for the Indy 500 huge story should be a huge story because yeah. Andretti alignment and affiliation. Great. Uh, right behind Ryan Hunter Ray, a winner of the race in a very big team. Okay, we know Elio is a winner, but in a team that's never won a race and is still, by comparison, got a lot to learn and prove. Huge news behind Elio, Ganassi, Andretti, Coin. How awesome! I know that Alex Pillow made the fast nine last year. I know that this isn't the first time that the Coin team has been quick. Just saying. When you look at a Meyer Shank and a couple of coins being in the top 13 and behind them, you read team names like Air McLaren SP, Ray Hall Letterman, Andretti, Penske, Ray Hall, Carpenter, Penske, et cetera, et cetera. That's the cool part, guys. That's the part where seemingly every year, one major team eats the poop sandwich. And uh, this year uh, it's been Penske qualifying i'm not going to say that they're count them out caliber for the race but they're going to have to find something in carb day i think to uh, really give themselves the confidence that the cars cars not the drivers but the cars can run up front with some of the uh, fastest ponies both from ed carpenter but also ganassi and andretti uh let's see where, where else do we go here um and hey, we got still a little bit more than yeah, about a half hour to go. Cool, uh, Acer Rubrum. Uh, do you think the loose tape flapping from Herta's left side pod was enough to keep him from pole? Uh, he says, I think Mike Holt posted that it would have been something like uh, fifty-five inches difference between the two cars after ten miles of running. Eh, not really. I mean, did it help? No. Was it the difference? No. Uh, I I don't think so. Uh, Michael Everson. Is it Everson or Everson? I don't know, but I just said it both ways, so hopefully I got one of them right. It says, Dixon said he never heard what the rear wing setting was for his Fast 9. Would your friend Mr. Cannon be able to tell us exactly how trimmed uh, that sketchy car was? Well, would? On the record? Off the record. No, uh, I don't even ask those questions because, you know, uh, those aren't, even though he's an old friend, those aren't the things he should tell me. I'd want them to, but, uh, what I loved in Scott's, uh, date indie episode today was him just talking about like, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to be totally in the dark here, but you know, don't do anything crazy, but I'll figure it out when I fire into turn one, like what this is the reason why these people, they're unlike any others in sport. And I, you would just, just got to celebrate them. And they've been that way forever. And they're going to be that way forever in the future. But at least for who we got right now, oh, we have a front row, the all bravery front row. That's maybe the big takeaway from the fast nine. And I'm not saying the drivers behind Dixon, Herta, and VK weren't brave. I'm not saying that. 
I'm just saying if you could choose the bravest among the brave in that group, uh, you got them stacked on the front row. Oh my gosh. Like it, it <laughs> I'm so thankful the Indy 500 does not start with the three rows mandatorily holding position until turn one on the opening lap. Because if this was a chicken fight between Dixie, Herta, and VK of who is going to blink first and lift and lead into turn one, since we know uh, you can't go three wide and have all three come out the other end in one piece, like, I'm guessing Dixon would probably lift a little bit. Older guy, big picture, championship leader, right? But still, oh, just imagine that. Like, that's almost a fantasy scenario. What if the front row of this year's Indy 500, no one fell in line, no one got a jump on each other at the start, there was no falling back. It was just stayed three wide all the way up to turn one just as they're about to, like, the split second before they start feeding some steering input into the car to get through turn one. Who blinks first? Like, it's not VK, right? I mean, we know that. That kid, what? We are so thankful. I hope. If you don't know the kid, if you don't love the kid, I I hope you come to know and love him. We are so fortunate to have that kid here instead of him and F1 in some midfield, whatever crappy team where we don't get to see his full talent and personality on display, right? There's still a little bit of lost in translation, right? He's a fun kid, boisterous kid, but, you know, he's still feeling a little more comfortable as he gets older and showing that in in a strange land of strange people here. But his personality is on 1,000% display behind that steering wheel. And that kid, you can't scare him. There's nothing. There's not a, a single tiny minute bone of fear anywhere in that kid's body. And how much of a gift is that? Then there's Colton Herta, Mr. Cool Breeze, who is the same as Renus, but I think with a little sharper of an edge. Uh... This kid might be a thousand years old in terms of maturity. He might be as Californian an IndyCar driver as you're ever going to see. Long hair, laid back, everything's chill, likes the punk rock. Like he is as stereotypical SoCal as it gets with a giant brain, with hyper competitive i want to kill and destroy everything in front of me every second of every lap with big grasp of the big picture but not necessarily willing to do the scott dixon yeah okay i'll probably give it up a little bit no like all the kid wants to do is win 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 and so the thought of the two of them next to dixie going into turn one i don't even know if dixie would lift He's, he's, there's a little edge to him this year that I'm seeing this whole youth movement and they're going to try to take me out. Hey, I think there's been a little bit of pushback there too. Not a crazy amount, not an irresponsible amount, but 
Anyways, just a fantasy scenario. What if the they were three wide firing into turn one on lap one? Who blinks? Does anybody blink? Is Ed Carpenter the leader at the end of lap one? Because Dixie, Herta, and VK are all climbing out of their cars, pissed but kind of laughing because they actually tried to go three wide and no one wanted to concede a spot. I don't know. But yeah, uh, this is the all bravery, all FU front row uh, that I can think of in just about forever. And I love it. Uh, let's see. Where else are we going here? Uh, Rishi, you're back asking the question for people. And by the, I mean, because everybody, everybody uh, sent in something wanting to know about this a little bit. Um, hey, Jack Harvey trying to qualify right rear tire. Uh, looked like it had done 400,000 miles on the highway. Um, asks, do we know what happened to Jack's tire? No. Uh, rang Michael Shank. And I don't think I'm sharing anything that's super top secret, but they took a look at it, had no idea what happened. Firestone took a look at it, said, we truly have no idea, right? This is not some, oh boy. All right. Yeah. We've seen this before. Never seen that happen before uh, in so few laps. So I think it's just some sort of manufacturing oddity uh, with that specific tire. Um, don't know what happened. Wasn't anything that looked like something else they'd seen before Hrishi to go, yep, uh, this falls in line with something we saw once somewhere else. Just a freak occurrence. Uh, the one cool thing that IndyCar did, and I, I again only learned about it afterwards, is I know a couple folks asked on I think Twitter at the you know right after it happened. Well, hey, does Jack get an extra attempt or a free this or a free whatever that wasn't his fault? No, I mean you know bad things happen to cars. Uh, often it's not the fault of the team or whatever else, but it just happens. But what IndyCar did do, which I thought was was solid, was they said, hey. Uh, if you want to go back out, you're going to need to get in line, right? But uh, put a tire on there. You can go straight to the line. Uh, normally, you're required, since they went back, took a look at things, took the car apart a little bit, inspected and whatnot, you're required to go through tech before you go back out and try and qualify. That would eat up a considerable amount of time because there's usually a bunch of other cars trying to get through tech, trying to get out, try to make another run. IndyCar said, hey, okay, put another tire on. You can go right back out and try. So I thought that was pretty solid, but I don't know if we're going to have an answer for this, Rishi. Uh, Trip Hazard, how you doing, Trip? Marshall, outside of the Penske struggle, what was the biggest surprise for you this qualifying weekend? Says, for me, it was Carlin not being in the last row shootout. Oh, that's really well spotted. Just because it looked like Max might be getting a bit tired of the gig. Yeah, that's that's a really good one. Uh, just a couple I'll throw in here. I already mentioned probably my big biggest, like, hey, we're not celebrating this enough. And by we, I mean me, right? It's kind of my job to do this too. With the Dale Coyne team, I think they deserve credit, more credit than they've gotten. Uh, I'd mentioned coming into the month of May, specifically the 500 knowing how terrible Ed Jones's season had been, knowing how much of a beast he happens to be 
at the uh, 500 that yeah, he really needed to, uh, I think, show us something here to make sure that he's still in that car. Um, he's showing it so happy for him to at least, you know, at this point, um, he's pretty darn good. And so I'm glad to see that things appear like uh, they're going well for him. And so, yeah, I'd say that's the number one that jumps out. Pietro as well, right? I know that he's done some NASCAR and done some of this and that, but it's not like the kid's got a thousand years of oval experience in an Indy car. I'd say that's equally as impressive, right? Pietro might be the sleeper performance of qualifying. Uh, and I think he's going to be our guest Tuesday on the day at Indy. Um, I think Pietro's performance in P13, I'm, I'm feeling some kind of way about that. I think he, uh, I think he did something we need to really recognize. And, you know, obviously I hope or wish that we had the kid in the series more often, but I think there was something that, uh, he did something good and that jumps out trip. I'd say what else? The Ray Hall, Letterman Lanigan team, right? Uh, I thought they would be a little bit stronger -er than they were. Um, not like there was badness there. I mean, they're kind of mid pack. We obviously know that they can win for mid pack. That's not a concern, but just, I guess I, I thought I was going to see a little bit more, but didn't uh, so far in quali- qualifying is more what I'm speaking about. Uh, Scotty McLaughlin again, lead Penske driver. You know, that's been a topic we've covered, but if the guy were to, re- were to retire tomorrow from IndyCar, we'd still be talking about, hey, you remember that time when the dude showed up and was best? Well, the Penske guys on his first time at the race that matters the most to Roger, that's freaking stupendous. Um, where else? Where else should we look here? J.R. Hildebrand? I thought our man J.R. being top among the Foyt cars was... I I expected our boy, Mr. French Fry, uh, Mr. Bourdais, to be P1 there. Marco? Oh, boy. I don't know what's going on there. Um, just listening to what they share over the radio, reading some of the quotes post session quotes and whatnot it just really looks like marco's not in a super healthy headspace and i apologize if i'm using the phrase headspace a lot i don't know why but uh old angry confused frustrated venting marco is who it looks like has come back after a a six month plus break and i really thought it was going to be the opposite I thought it was going to be Zen Marco was hoping at least it was going to be Zen Marco to then get the most out of himself. I know the car hasn't been fast. I know it's lack of speed is not all down to him by any stretch, but the, the level of his mental defeatedness on display through radios and written quotes, that's, that surprised me and saddened me. Last overall observation here of surprises. Um, I did think Aero McLaren SP was going to be a little more than what they were. So, hey, Pato Ward's 12th. That's not bad. No, I just thought they were going to be a factor fast nine fast in general. I know they've had some decent stuff. 
if we're talking running in packs and, and toe speeds and whatnot, but famous last words, we'll see what happens. But uh, probably the biggest shock has been our man, Mr. It Is What It Is, Juan Pablo Montoya, slowest of the three and slowest by a decent amount, uh, starting 24th with our friend Craig Hampson, who's a Hall of Famer in terms of engineering. It's maybe been the one like, huh, I thought Aaron McLaren SP was going to be agitating in the fast nine. And I don't know if I thought JPM was going to be there, but 12th, 13th, I don't know if I had anything in my head painted for him uh, lower than 15th. And the fact that there hasn't been much speed that I've seen in practice and he ended up 24th kind of out of the frame a bit, that does surprise me. Um, so yeah, those are the main things that come to mind trip. Uh, but I do love the max Chilton observation here. Um, I don't know where they're going. Uh, I'm hoping to find out. I hope they're around for a long time, but as I've said recently on the show, it just appears like every year it gets harder for them and whether it's finding sponsorship or drivers, uh, other than Max, it's not getting easier. Uh, okay, what else are we going to rattle through before we say goodbye? And we're actually, I think, going to be pretty close to two hours here, maybe just a little touch over. Uh, I'm actually going to work my way up from the bottom. Steve Sell says, You did not call out Scott McLaughlin for saying me personally during your interview with him. Oh, you're so right, Steve. And I knew, and I'm thankful for you. I knew someone was going to call me out on that the minute he said it. And you should, rightfully so. I appreciate you keeping me honest, Steve. I got a little bit of a reason, a little bit of an excuse, which I alluded to earlier in the show. Yeah, I had to record it twice, and it was it gotten to be late, you know, 9, 9.30 is time in Indy when we did it. So I can tell you, he did not say the phrase, the one that I hate the most because of the it being a redundancy, but it's become the official hashtag of the show, hashtag me personally. He did not say it the first recording. wasn't there. And so when I reached out, just texted him, said, hey, mate, again, just I'm apologizing to you because we spent time, you spent time, and I'm sorry, but it was wasted, so, you know, you're not going to see it. It's not going to go up. Just want to let you know. And again, he's such an amazing guy. He's like, no, mate, let's, let's do it again. And I knew that he was like chilling on the couch with his wife drinking, maybe not a beer, but something comforting. And I'm like, that's, I wouldn't do that. If I was you, I wouldn't do that for me, but you're doing it. So it's amazing. So that's why I didn't call him out because I owed him one instantly. And he fired that off like right away in the second recording. So yes, you're right to call me out, Steve. And I appreciate it. All of you, call me out. Hey, you idiot. I mean, granted, uh, plenty of you do. Not always on the show, but, you know, uh, social media, direct message, whatever. I love it. Look, y'all know I'm an idiot. You accept me for all my massive failings, and I love it when you give me grief when you should. So, yeah, if this had been in the first episode, I would have. I genuinely would have, Steve. But when he said it, I had a instantaneous million mile an hour conversation and reconciliation with myself. Oh man, I gotta get, I gotta stop him. I gotta get him. 
but I can't because he's doing me a favor by doing this again. What am I going to do? Piss him off and have him go click? Like so, yeah, I had to eat that one. Um, but anyways, maybe I'll get him a, a hashtag T-shirt from TorontoMotorsports.com that has uh, me personally on it as uh, a little thank you corrective device. Uh, let's see, working up backwards. I already covered this a little bit, but let me see. Uh, let me see if there's anything in here that um, would be of interest. Talking about Top Gun racing. A pal, Daniel Ingleton is back. Daniel, you're a busy man this episode. MP was the reason why Top Gun Racing didn't have a title sponsor because they needed to make the show before the company fully committed. I don't know uh, if I had a better relationship with the people who own the team. I might know, but I don't because I was not kind or accepting of a lot of the earmuffs bullshit they were floating last year. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors and nonsense and a lot of puffing of chests and claiming of nonsense. And, you know, uh, they're more than welcome to do it and did. I just don't necessarily have to swallow all of it. So I don't know. I can tell you this. As I understood, the Navy sponsorship, which they teased, suggested and whatnot many times last year um i had heard that that had disappeared a little while ago that that just certainly wasn't happening i'd heard again these are rumors not claiming that they're accurate just sharing what i'd heard i'd heard that there might have been something from big machine records uh something related to the Nashville GP, where I believe Big Machine Vodka, Big Machine Records, and all that was going to be involved. I'd heard there could have been a couple things that had come through. Instead, what I'd heard is they were coming into the event on financial fumes. Don't know if that's accurate, but since they had, I believe, no sponsorship on the car, and again, maybe there was a little thing here or there, but... Nothing nothing that I could see that said anything other than Top Gun Racing in the high-value areas on the car for sponsors to uh, buy. I didn't see a thing. So as I had heard, they were coming in really limping financially. Could that have been a reason why they ran, didn't run a ton in practice maybe? I don't know. You know, by that stage, you go, well, you've paid for the engine lease. You've uh, covered off the tire uh, Bill, you've done a lot of things. So, you know, I can't think of many reasons why you would not run if you've come that far. But regardless, I don't know. And to be really honest, I don't know if I have the interest to find out, Daniel. That's why, Daniel Summersgill, your question of what do you think of their first attempt? They did better than I expected by not disgracing themselves. Anderson has potential in a good car. Was there any reason why they opted to miss practice time on Wednesday when they could have been out running? Yeah, they gave reasons, but again, there, there's no argument for not running. Just none. Uh, sitting out, I was there in 98 with our same Indy Lights-derived TKM Genoa team. We had to sit out for a couple days leading into qualifying because we had no money to run. Truly, we had no money to run. We had one engine, couldn't really afford to put miles on it, couldn't afford to do much of anything. We had to sit because the business did not have money 
to go onto the track. And so for the entire duration of practice. So we had to prioritize when we did to then run. Again, was that something involving their reason on Wednesday? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not trying to be a dick here, but the people who keep score, whether it is of your lap time or your lap speed, they don't ask why you didn't make the race. They don't care. And it's not really a they, it's more a computer doing the electronic timing and scoring, but they don't care. If we had failed to qualify in 1998 because we were too strapped for cash to go out and practice at all and then failed to make the show because we just hadn't done enough practice to find a setup that worked, there's no ex- there's maybe some interesting stories to tell at the bar. They don't care, though, at the track. Computer doing the timing and scoring doesn't care. Come up with any and all the reasons, even if they're the best, right? Hey, overnight, uh, a Wolverine got into the garage and chewed through every wiring loom and ate the intake plenum and then swallowed it by digesting sixth gear. You go, that's the worst thing. It's pretty amazing that a Wolverine did that, but what? Oh, my God, we're going to tell that story forever along with the fact that you didn't make the race because nobody cares. I mean, really, nobody cares. So just getting back to the reasons, not trying to be a dick here. I've been on bad teams. I was probably one of the contributors to some of those teams being bad. But I've been on bad teams where we underachieved, and maybe we got into the Indy 500. That happened twice in my career where the team just kind of crappy. Like, really, not great, but we did enough things right to get in. But I've been on bad teams, and I've been on a team that failed to qualify for an IndyCar race. It wasn't Indy 500, but failed to qualify. And you, hey, we didn't like it. Afterwards, though, I know most of us on the team were honest with ourselves and said, yeah, we didn't deserve to be in the show. We didn't deserve to be in that race. We Not only were we not fast enough, we weren't even close. There are so many things that were dysfunctional. Not there, not in the race. I stood up on top of the grandstands in turn one at the 1999 IRL race at Walt Disney World and spotted for my boy Steve Knapp, right? Never spotted before, but hey, it was the IRL, it was Walt Disney World. Yeah, Steve Knapp, Steve could do anything. That guy's incredible. So, hey, was I the best spotter? Absolutely not. I was probably garbage, but I did pay attention for the whole race, and I don't remember where he finished. I feel like think we might not have finished the race, but whatever it was, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. They didn't disgrace themselves, sure. Um, but, you know, what? What they had a problem with a, some sort of a leak that they had to go back and fix, I think, on Saturday or something like that. So uh, they had this, they had that, you know, I feel bad for them like I feel for every team, Daniel, that doesn't make the Indy 500, but they were never close. And the amount of time that they forfeited, for whatever reason, intentional or not, the amount of time they did not run is one of the main reasons why they were as far off as they were. We can go back to that. It was only a couple miles an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're we're slicing this thing so thin on what gets you in the show or what keeps you out that... A mile an hour, being a mile an hour slower than 
the last place qualifier is like night and day. Um, James Zukas, you ask, was there any reason Enerson's car would have had three tariffs on the windscreen on Sunday? Seems minor, but useless during single car qualifying. It may add just a tiny amount of drive to the car. Yeah, nothing really there, James. Um, you would have seen many cars having tear-offs on them. Uh, it takes a long time to install them. A long, 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 long time. So, yeah, I wish it was something that you go, oh, yeah, well, that would have taken 90 seconds to reinstall. Not the case at all. Uh, you know, would you say maybe a little bit presumptive they were going to be in the show? Yeah, sure, but nothing critical, nothing uh, to pick apart there. Uh, all right, last couple of questions. We're just past the two-hour threshold a little bit. Uh, let's see, where do we go here? Daniel, you're back. Do you know what has gone down between Carlin and sponsored Gallagher Insurance? Um, as it was mentioned on the Peacock broadcast, during one of the sessions they had parted ways. Is this anyway connected to Max missing the NDGP? Just coincidental. Are things okay at Carlin? I assume they're okay at Carlin. Uh, I don't know otherwise. Um, I would say I'm surprised that Gallagher was there as long as they were knowing that Max's father, Graham Chili Chilton left the company, what, two years ago? If my memory is serving me okay. Uh, yeah. So now do I recall if, uh, Graham stayed on as some sort of board member or whatever, instead of CEO or whatever, I don't, but at least in my brain, there was a, uh, a bookmark of he left the company. It makes me think that there's a finite amount of time left where they will remain the sponsor. Wouldn't say that my belief is accurate, but I wouldn't be totally blown away to learn that, yeah, maybe that's actually just kind of the natural conclusion of that relationship. Uh, also, again, just overstating the obvious a little bit, I realized that Connor grabbed pole last year at uh, one of the races uh, at Gateway, which is amazing. I think it was Gateway, but grabbed pole, which is wonderful, and they had some strongish oval performances at times, and Max had a couple of strong road course and street course performances, but in general, last year wasn't exactly a bullish season for the team where Gallagher was you know, dead center and TV uh, cameras uh filming the action around the track so you know if, if you disregard the link between the chilton family and the company if you're just looking at merit of performance in advertising return i think it would have been normal for them to reevaluate the end of the season either way jeff zerneski and kt8 talking about weather card bay looks like a washout kt8 K8T says, I'm sorry, which maybe is just Kate, and I'm not smart enough to figure it out. Any idea or way to reach out to IndyCar about contingencies? If they can't practice on Friday, will they run it blind or try to fit in something on a COVID quiet Saturday? I would absolutely expect IndyCar to run a carb day session prior to the race. Uh, with all the engine changes going on, all the everything changes going on, so much work of these cars being totally blown apart, dismantled, inspected, rebuilt, reassembled, and so on. I, and that's every single car in the field. Uh, there's no way I can think of IndyCar not 
letting these cars out to run prior to the 500. Again, we're having to play a little bit of who knows what here. Uh, if it's totally super rainy and we say magically get to race Sunday as planned, would I expect them to say, all right, sorry, it's going to be an early morning, but we just got some clear weather. Y'all are going out at name the time. 8 a.m. for a, a 30 minute session, 15 minutes, whatever. Uh, you're not going to be out running in packs and going nuts right before the race, but we're going to give you 15 minutes for everyone to go run and do some installation laps. Um, something. Now, of course, you would hope that sanity prevails and people are not dive bombing each other at 220 miles an hour, a couple hours before the race. And again, I'm just saying, worst case scenario. I can think of no situation where all teams would be fine with 33 vehicles having done zero laps uh, to confirm whether there is a water leak, an oil leak, an electronic glitch, the timing and scoring transponder isn't talking, all the little things that you learn during that carb day session, having torn everything apart and put it back together again. That session of discovery, just forget the performance and final race setup, tweaking and running. Forget that part. Just the vehicle sign-off and validation side. I'd say there's no way I can think of IndyCar uh, letting the race take place with all 33 cars being question marks. Um, Jeff Sterneski, a similar question. You also mentioned, I think, nice things saying uh, you hope... My wife, Shabrell, and the cats and myself are doing well. We are. Thank you, my friend. Um, are we done just about? We are. Uh, Mike, Matt, 5150. Over under on Mike Shank shotgunning a bush light if he wins the Indy 500 as an owner. Ah, well, first of all, Mike, Matt, 5150. You're hilarious here. Shotgunning a bush light? What are you talking about? Shotgunning all bush light mike driving to the closest uh bush light distillery diving into the giant vat and doing a strange brew mckenzie brothers drinking the whole thing down to being absolutely empty that's what would happen with mike winning the indy 500 uh the moment Jack Harvey or Elio crossed the yard of bricks to win myself and probably a hundred other people would start searching for rehab facilities in and around Ohio, Indiana, you name it because, Oh my gosh, you want to talk about a team owner going on a bender. This might be, again, I'm just thinking there might be some planning involved here with there being 12 to 13 days or whatever between the Indy 500 and the Belle Isle Grand Prix in Detroit, it might just be so that if Mike ends up winning, he can sober up, dry up a little bit, uh, get him into a couple of meetings, make sure his head is straight. And I'm not saying he's an alcoholic. I'm just a little bit of humor here, but yeah. Oh my gosh. Every bush light. Yes. Um, this guy, would be, I don't know if we'd get him out of the snake pit. I don't know if anyone's going to be in the snake pit. He might be there by himself, but he is going to be there shotgunning everything. Uh, if there's any fuel left in the refueling tank, 
105 octane E85. He's going to drink all that too. Uh, Mike is a party animal and I love him. It like, if Sammy Hagar, who's one of his friends and he loves everything Sammy does more than anything, but if Sammy Hagar was a IndyCar team owner, he'd be Mike Shank. If, and I don't think Sammy acts, but if they were to ever do the Michael Shank story, Sammy would play him, right? So, oh, that'd be amazing. I just love this. Uh, Richard Brown, you're bringing us back to something a little bit more serious. I was a little confused by the descending qualifying speeds lap to lap. Is that just a temperature issue or something with the tires? I seem to remember a lot of drivers finding their fastest lap on lap three or four back in the day. Yeah, I've gotten this question a couple times uh, in recent years, Richard, and I guess that's the case. Uh, I'm forgetting a little bit, but I'm also thinking about back in the day. A lot of differences, too. Um, in some cases, you could maybe have a little bit more boost. You might push a little bit harder towards the end of a run, whereas now, flat out the entire time. Um, being purely flat from lap one to the end of lap four, which has been the norm for a while or super close, you know, maybe tiny little lift, but it's a lot different than quote back in the day, you know, eighties, uh, nineties and whatnot, where the driver was truly driving the car, making serious decisions on how much throttle and when uh, it's kind of all throttle at all times. And so I would just say, we're talking about a difference between back then and back now probably more case of car getting a little bit warmer a little faster driver feeling more confident with each lap to therefore push a little harder back in the day so you're seeing those later laps going up in speed these days they're flat out from the beginning uh the downforce is so low that tires are being worn at a very high rate of speed Things start wiggling around, as we saw with Renus and quite a few others. So, yeah, you tend to get optimal first flying lap, second flying lap-ish, and then pretty normal then to see lap three down a little bit, lap four down a little bit. And it's not because the driver, especially, you know, first half of the field for sure, they're not magically lifting off the throttle and losing speed. It's just losing that little bit extra grip corner by corner. And yeah, over those last couple laps, two laps in particular, tend to just have a little bit of fall off. So that's where the judgment of quality is how little drop off there was over those four laps. And the notes of surprise for some drivers was, whoa, Dixon, good example. Guys on the pole, lap one, crazy, super fast. Wow. You get to lap four, definitely down a little bit, right? I mean, no, uh, no arguing that point. If you think about what he did, uh, how he did it, etc., etc., he was looking like an absolute lock and guarantee for pole. And that last lap was a little bit sketchy. Sketchy? That's the number one kind of most commonly used word, I think, during this year's Indy 500. Um, you look at that last lap and he lost enough speed to where boy, uh, he just barely ended up ahead of Colton hurt up. So I would say just a, a perfect example here of exactly what we're talking about of. Yeah. 
that drop-off is normal. You just don't want it to be totally insane. Uh, all right, I think we're going to close here. Uh, Will Velkoff and Jeremy Lorton, you're asking about uh, some of the details and typical setup changes made to the cars between qualifying and, say, Sunday night practice, both mechanical and aero. In general, and again, I'm just talking general, uh, you're just going to be adding more downforce. That more downforce will then often need a little bit more mechanical control, right? If you think of the springs on the vehicle, uh, on the four corners of the vehicle, depending on how much additional downforce you're adding to the car, you're going to need some extra spring, very likely, to manage that extra uh, downloading on the vehicle. Uh, you're probably going to go a little bit more aggressive on your suspension settings, your alignment to get the most out of the thing in qualifying and go back to a little bit less. Oh my gosh, this thing is turning like mad and everything's just on a knife edge of performance to, okay, (laughs) I could do that for four laps in qualifying. I can't necessarily do that for 200 laps of a race. I don't want it to kill me. So could you please, Go back to the alignment where it's not trying to murder me the whole time. Uh, so those are just some general things, um, and pretty normal as well, Will. It's also why, if you think about those who get through the Fast 9 and don't land on pole, you tend to see them getting out for that session two hours later, that final session that we had a little bit faster than the pole sitter, right? Wasn't Dixon one of the last ones out? Maybe the last one out, I'm not sure. Uh, or I don't remember exactly. Um, you know, you got to sit there, you got to do the interviews and you pose for the photo and they do a full big photo Monday morning with the full crew. But, you know, there's uh, a little bit of pomp and circumstance that takes place. Car isn't necessarily re- released right away. And so there's often a little bit of grumpiness from the pole winning team because they want to get back, turn it around, and go right back out to be there for the first minute of that practice session. Didn't quite happen. So, anyways, um, yeah, kind of the normal stuff. By the way, uh, on the Dixon drop-off is a lap one speed 232.7, which was the best of anybody. And it was like, wow. That was like four-tenths of a mile an hour up on Herta. Um, next lap two-tenths of a mile, mile an hour up, but down to 231.8. 232.7 to 231.8, almost a mile an hour loss. If you look at Herta's lap one to lap two, it was like, what, seven-tenths of a mile an hour? So less of a drop-off. Um, Herta lap two to lap three was like three-tenths of a mile an hour. So, And then lap three to lap four for Herta, almost identical. Almost no change, just a little over a tenth of a mile an hour difference. Dixon, 232.7, 231.8, then down to 231.3, so about half a mile an hour there. And then lap four, that was the big surprise that almost put Colton Herta on pole. 230.7. So I guess you'd look at it and say, well, if your first lap was 232.7 and your last lap was 230.7, you know, we're just talking a two-mile-an-hour difference. That's huge. <laughs> it almost lost Dixon the pole. He ended up getting the pole by three hundredths of a second for that average. So, 
again, just coming back to the little numeric example. All right, we're going to close here with our pal Jamie Rowe. Thanks to you, Jamie. Do appreciate you. You uh, did something sweet. Just sharing the wish you could be here wearing uh, one of our podcast shirts last weekend at the Speedway. Said it was great sporting that MP podcast, Toronto Motorsports t-shirt at Fast Friday. My question is, where will the merch trailer be for the 500? Because I will support those who support the podcast. So I know I mentioned this at the outset. I wanted to save this one for last, though, Jamie. Not only to reiterate the right outside turn one by the USAC office, which if you're familiar with Indy, you'll kind of know where that is. But in general, the roundabout coming up towards turn one in the main speedway office there. But I mentioned this because of not only those new Willie T t-shirts that will be available for the first time anywhere this coming weekend, 28th through the 30th. So go there directly to the trailer to get them. They're also available on torontomotorsports.com. I don't have the link in front of me, but if you go there, and you type in Willie T. Ribs, you'll be pleasantly surprised. But go there and see them. But what we're trying to do, and the reason I want to close with this, is uh, our man, Mr. Ribs, said he would absolutely do his best to come by and spend some time there and sign some T-shirts, sign some whatever, sign you name it. And I don't want to name all the other drivers that we hope and think are going to be there, but I know that our man, Derek Koska, the torontomotorsports.com man himself, uh, has indeed been speaking with a couple of drivers. I don't really have, I'm not going to say it because it's his news to share, provided it all happens. But there are a couple of drivers that he works very closely with and a lot of their merch. So wouldn't be too crazy to think that maybe one or two of them would pop by as well. But I think what we will see, which I love, is torontomotorsports.com, right? They're not sitting there based in Indiana. They're not, you know, some been around here forever. Everybody knows them. They're like part of the family Although the business has been around for a long time, based in Canada, never done a, a traveling merchandise trailer before. It's a new venture for our man Derek and also Roger Warwick, who joins men on that as well. But they feel like they're the family that is part of us. And even though this is really their first kind of serious penetration into being part of of the IndyCar events on the ground. And what better evidence of that than hopefully some very real IndyCar drivers coming and spending time in uh, the merchandise trailer and maybe Mr. Ribs himself. Um, I just love that. I think it says so much about Derek and Roger and how they take care of people, how they treat people the kindness that they have, the fun that they have, right? They're always looking to do something fun to make this stuff enjoyable because, trust me, go to the bottom of uh, a certain motor racing website that I love and spend most of my day contributing for and read a lot of the comments and you go, oh, there's some of the most miserable people on the planet who uh, just cannot wait to dig deeper into that misery every day with whatever they have to say about whatever thing. And then you go, but you know what, you know, who is fighting the good fight and who is killing all that noise and who is just bringing fun and love and humor and silliness and gives a 10% discount to members of the Prude, uh, group here as well. It's Derek. 
It's torontomotorsports.com. It's Roger War, just doing fun things. So love the fact that uh, you'll be going and, and hanging with them a little bit, Jamie. I hope the rest of you who are there at Indy get a chance to do that as well. Even if you don't buy a thing, just go by and see Derek. Go see Roger. You're going to laugh. They're hilarious people, and you're just going to have some fun. And they're our family, right? They're our family. So I hope you get a chance to do that. I'm going to miss all of you that are there. I really am. I don't want to sound like too much of a homer, but it's going to be my third Indy 500 I've missed. And there is just something in my soul that says, nope, <laughs> yeah, it can't happen again. Yeah, almost, we almost were in a place where I could go this year, but uh, I, I don't know if I could handle it if I weren't there next year. So go check out our pals at torontomotorsports.com and their trailer. Head to that indie memorabilia show. Keep it going. Make it a success so that I can go next year. <sighs> Love y'all. Missed y'all. I'm going to have to do a part two. Uh, because there's so much, and uh, who knows how many questions have come in since Jim put the list together. And uh, I don't know if there's going to be a part three, but anyways, we're going to try and have some fun. By the way, Mike Hull, the Mike Hull, he used to be on the Week in IndyCar, I think, every week. Uh, slowed it down just a little bit, but uh, Mike's going to be our guest on Wednesday, and it's going to be all about getting ready for the Indy 500, having the Yoda of IndyCar talk to us about everything get us ready talk about not only the Ganassi team kicking butt but uh, in qualifying and such but uh, gonna have Mike on and really looking forward to that and I don't know what else but have a good night thanks to you torontomotorsports.com absolutely love our pals at Cooper Tires the Justice Brothers they're my family as much as can be as well thanks to you speak to you here right away <laughs>